I'm Danny Gold, and this is a Vespucci story. It's a powerful thing when folk believe in you. But when when folk believe in you, son, they have an expectation for you to rise. This is a story about St. Louis. It's a story about the opioid crisis and gang violence. But above all, it's a story about a father and his son, about what it takes to rise up and what it takes to be a family. Kenneth McCoy is a minister. He's known to many simply as the Reverend. Standing six foot three with dreadlocks down the small of his back, he cuts an imposing figure as he walks the streets of North St. Louis. The Reverend's been fighting for this area for years. St. Louis has had the highest murder rate in America for six successive years. And it's here on the north side where most of the murders are and where the Reverend chooses to minister. Who trained you for that, you know, to eulogize more 20-year-olds than you do 80-year-olds kind of thing, you know, um, to uh, uh, de-escalate, de-escalate a potential shooting. What seminary does that? You know, what divinity school does that? What college does that? You know, what, what seminar, what conference does that? You know, it's almost non-existent. But that's still the world that we're in, man. That's, 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 that's where we are. It's a constant, dangerous uphill battle. You can see the weariness on his face and catch it in the way he sighs, in the words of his prayers. But doing this work is how the Reverend can answer a calling he has had since childhood. He was just a regular poor black kid. Childhood, my father died when I was seven. So I was raised by a single mother in D.C. And um, that was very difficult. I, well, I didn't know it was difficult then, but as I, you know, as I, you know, grew, you know, got older, we had our own local heroes and all that kind of thing. But just rough, and my mother worked hard to get us out of there. Got us out of that stuff while we were teenagers before things got crazy. The Reverend found himself swept forward by the words of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and soon found the ministry. Is not free. One hundred years later. He followed his calling wherever it led. He worked in St. Louis as a young man, then traveled all over the Midwest, working for nonprofits, before eventually settling back in the St. Louis area. And that's where the fight would get more personal than he ever thought possible. When he returned to St. Louis years later, a woman came to his church, bringing her young son to hear the Reverend preach. After the service, she waited to speak to the Reverend. She invited him to join them for dinner at her home. He accepted. Come dinner time, sitting down at the table, the Reverend noticed an old photo of her, taken years ago, framed on her mantle. Something struck a chord, and it all came back to him, their brief but fleeting romance. When he looked at the woman again, she started crying. And when he looked at her boy, Lyndon, it was with recognition. This was his son. The Reverend swore to be the father that his child needed. But he knew as well as anybody that the world, particularly in North St. Louis, can be an unforgiving place. All of a sudden, he wasn't just praying for his community. 
He was praying for his son. I was like six years old, uh, still learning how to ride training wheels. And uh, my sister was uh, pushing me on my bike, my big sister. And a uh, drive-by came through the neighborhood. And she hurried up and dove out the way. And you know what I'm saying? Everybody was screaming and yelling. But once the smoke cleared, I guess, we went back to where my bike was at. It was all bullet holes right there, like basically where my body was at. You know what I'm saying? So that should have been the thing that showed me, but I didn't have that mind. I had a five-year-old mind, you know what I'm saying? It scared me, you know what I'm saying? But it didn't, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go play basketball the next hour, you know what I'm saying? You don't really take things serious, but that's really the first memory that stuck with me and showed me that it ain't no joke out here now. I was still riding training wheels. Lyndon would face the same challenges every kid has growing up, plus a few extra. Ask anyone he grew up with and they'll need at least two hands to count the friends and relatives they've lost to guns at prison. While his dad worked in the community and preached to his congregation, Lyndon joined a gang. You in the hood, you gonna be part of the hood, whether you like it or not. I joined when I was little. My neighborhood was already a crip neighborhood, so as we was all coming up, I guess the older guys, the OGs, they say was already molding us into becoming, you know what I'm saying, future crips for the neighborhood, you know what I'm saying? Gang culture in St. Louis was growing. For decades, the city had closed in on itself. White flight had left the city's tax base decimated and schools underfunded. Factories closed and good-paying jobs went overseas. In this vacuum of opportunity, gangs thrived. The Bloods and Crips came in from L.A. Other gangs came down from Chicago. They took over neighborhoods across the north side, selling crack before moving into heroin as the opioid epidemic took hold. The kids in North St. Louis with few job prospects and attending failing schools, joining a gang was a way to be a part of something. Once I got in high school, then that's when it got kind of serious. Everybody wanted to be a gang member. Kind of like in the movies, you see everybody wanted to be in the old days, I guess, what the jackets or something, you know what I'm saying? Letterman jacket. that was just cool. Instead of being on the football team in the African-American community, for the most part, you want to be on the gang team. Lyndon started off small. Just little petty crimes like theft, car theft, selling drugs, uh, uh, maybe a strong arm robbery or something like that, little by little. Then things would escalate. As I got older, it started escalating to where, like, say say we was in the gang and we'd be at school and it'd be a big brawl and all that. Those brawls start turning into people weren't just using their hands anymore. People was using weapons, you know what I'm saying? I didn't really look at it. That's the, 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 the bad side of the gangbanging, you know what I'm saying? You don't look at that at all when you first start gangbanging. I got a handful that I can name on my fingers that's, that's dead, that didn't make it to C. Some of us didn't make it to C-18, some didn't make it to C-21, but either they dead or in jail. I mean, I guess you just think it's going to be a walk in the park like Alice in Wonderland or something, but it wasn't no yellow brick road at all. The Reverend didn't want his son to get pulled into that life. He'd seen how the streets could come for you how quickly the darkness could fall, how the damage couldn't be reversed. When he had first returned to St. Louis, he was preaching at a church just outside of city limits. It's there he met Antonio, a boy who would transform his ministry. So it was this young man who joined the church. Um, Antonio is a handsome guy, um, about 13, 14, handsome guy, and um, a lot of personality. I mean, this guy was just, you know, anybody would be proud to say, this is my son. So he joined the church. Um, he was good for my Sunday school because he kept the little girls in there and the other guys there just because he just kind of generated all this excitement. So he built up my Sunday school. 
And I think there was a, 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 some type of custody battle going on with the grandmother and their mother. It looked like the mother won and the kids, they had to move to the south side of St. Louis. And so I kind of lost touch with Antonio. And I remember Antonio calling me one day saying, Reverend McCoy, can you help me get a job? And I'm like, well, yeah. And I remember I was at my desk. I remember writing it down, help Antonio get a job. And I had a list of things I had written down that day. And it was like number five. So I didn't pursue that the way I should have. I got a call from his grandmother one day saying that um, he had been missing. And shortly after that, she got a call from a detective. And um, they found his body in a ravine in the county where he had been beaten with pipes, bats, and um, doused with bleach, rolled up in a tarp and just discarded like he was some garbage or something. That dealt with me. That, that mean, I felt a deep sense, not guilt, but responsibility. I eulogized him, and it was, it was I don't know how many people were there, 800 to 1,000 people. I don't know how I mean, I've never, it's the biggest funeral I'd ever done. All young people. And I did this sermon. I did what I was supposed to do. I visited everybody, you know, like we're supposed to do prior to the funeral. Prayed with people. Help sort of plan the eulogy. I did all the things that I was supposed to do, but I still felt like I hadn't done anything, man. That was probably one of the most embarrassing uh, uh, moments of my ministry, that people were congratulating me. And I'm having this, uh, I'm doing this major soul searching at the time. I'm like, what have I done? I mean, I just said some words. Antonio is gone, he's not coming back. He died a horrific death, these people, are just destroyed because of it. And all I did was just share some fancy words. And um, I don't say that to minimize it, but I just did not feel like I had done enough. He was tired of seeing grandparents burying their grandchildren. He was sick of eulogizing teens who died violently or from drug overdoses. All those years, um, I was just sort of going through some kind of mo the motions or something like, um, you know, I was doing, uh, the, the ministry was an administrative thing and a white collar thing. And I started to ask myself, when did the, the, the gospel or the pastoral ministry become this white collar thing where we pastor behind either an actual desk or a pulpit desk? You know, when did Jesus stop going out amongst the masses? After Antonio's death, the reverend started paying closer attention to the community. Meanwhile, his son Lyndon was out in those same streets, gang-banging and drug-dealing, earning the nickname Little Killer. In the summer of 2015, two events in the same week would propel them farther apart from each other. The first in broad daylight in the park, not far from the playground. And uh, when that happened, I was sitting on that bench right there. You know what I'm saying? I just look at it all the time like God just had me sitting down because... Everybody was right there. They was over there shooting dice next to that wall over there. But I was sitting right there on that bench. And next thing I know, a car coming just like that. But actually they was going down that way, came. And, and then, then was like the loudest gunshots I, I ever heard. Like, I just was stuck. I didn't know what to do. And I eventually started running that way. 
know what I'm saying? But then that's when I heard my friend cry. He started calling, his name is Cry, you know what I'm saying? He started, because he used to be a cry baby when he was little. You know what I'm saying? He started calling me back, towards him, and that's when I ran back. Lyndon picked up his friend Cry and ran from the scene, Cry's leg hanging off and bleeding profusely. And on the midst of that, that's when I seen my friend Jennifer. As he carried Cry out of there, he caught sight of his friend Jennifer. She was laying on the ground in front of them, shot in the shoulder and the head. As he staggered past with Cry on his shoulder, Jennifer lay motionless, already dead. It felt like a war zone. Their friend Jennifer was dead, her two kids left motherless. She'd been walking through the park near the playground when she was shot. She was collateral damage. The Reverend had known Jennifer as well. Her grandmother attended his church. I did this funeral of uh, this young lady that was shot in the park. And my son talked about that. He was in the park that day she was murdered. To watch a grandmother cry over a 27-year-old granddaughter was just too much for me then. Everything in my life was pointing towards, you need to be in these streets, man. Just one week after Jennifer's death, disaster would strike again. We're Crips. And uh, it was a rival gang of blood members that came through trying to get some retribution from stuff that happened years back. And they uh, didn't really care who they caught. They just wanted to catch anybody from that area. And I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. June 16th, 2015. I was uh, in an automobile and it was shot up 60 times. And uh, out of the 60 shots that they found, the 60 rounds, uh, I got hit four times in my right leg and it broke my uh, fibula and I still got a bullet in my right leg as well. The driver of the car, like he, I guess he hit the brakes, so we didn't drive up anywhere. We were stuck right there just in place while the shots was coming. So I just closed my eyes, you know what I'm saying? And I thought it was over for me, you know what I'm saying? Said a little quick prayer and, but before I knew it, I was opening my eyes up like, wow, you know what I'm saying? All those shots, and it felt like it was in slow motion, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know if y'all seen the Matrix movie, but you know how like when Neo was taking, stopping the bullets, that's what it felt like somebody did for me, cause it was like, you know what I'm saying, God was just taking the bullets, putting them down towards the ground. You know what I'm saying? But once I opened my eyes up, I was like, oh, I'm not dead. It's cool, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> when Lyndon got shot, something changed for the Reverend. It was too close a call. He never thought he would be happy to see his son carrying a gun. But like Lyndon told him, he would rather visit his son in jail than in a cemetery. I had become so certain at one point that I was going to lose my son that I wrote out his eulogy. And I know that's a horrible, horrible thing to say. And I was preparing myself to deal with something that I just saw as inevitable. This is going to happen. This cat done been shot four times. The car he was in was shot up 60 times. All his partners just about are dead or in jail. So I'm like, there's no way this guy can keep cheating death like this. He knew now more than ever that he needed to be out there, trying to find a solution to the violence of the streets, offering a way out. The Reverend started doing something he called night walks. He walked the streets late at night, going to places where people felt forgotten, places that were tense by day, lethal by night. He discovered how he could make a difference, bringing his ministry out of the church and right to the people. He brought food to the hungry and comfort to the neglected. He found himself in the right place to teach forgiveness. 
When angry, grieving young men planned a retaliatory killing, the Reverend convinced them that they would only succeed in bringing more grief into the world. They would hurt the victim's family, but wouldn't heal their own pain, and they would end up in prison. He prayed with anyone who would pray with him, and he prayed for those who would not. When gun violence threatened to overwhelm the community, and when drugs were like a plague sweeping through the streets and taking people with them, the Reverend walked, past addicts huddled in the shadows and dealers standing proudly on street corners. And when interventions by the city, by the police, couldn't stem the tide of destruction and gunshots rang out through the night, he kept walking. It was a test for me. Like when I prayed, it's usually a brief prayer before I go out. It's a real prayer, man. Like God, um, protect us. And um, if anybody has to get shot or die tonight, let it be me. The Reverend wanted everyone out there to know that they were loved more than they were feared. He got used to having a gun pulled on him. He got used to talking to the addicts. And eventually, they got used to talking to him, too. Soon, some of the men who had threatened his life treated him like a friend. He got to know everyone by name, from the old junkies to the young dope dealers. He learned when to intervene in an argument and when to walk away. And I can't say this enough. I don't think there's any nobility in what I do. I think this is what Jesus would do, right? This is exactly what Jesus would do. He walked some very, very dangerous roads, and he interacted and engaged some very, very dangerous and desperate people. That's what he did. He brought them hope. To Lyndon, hope seemed out of reach. It seemed like something meant for other people in other places. Uh, There's a lot of vacant lots, abandoned buildings, uh, liquor stores. that's pretty much it. That's the scenery, man. Imagine that on a young person, you know what I'm saying? It makes you feel like, oh, well, I can't mean nothing. I'm here, you know what I'm saying? Why am I here? And then you see TV and, and you see life everywhere else is good. Well, you'd be like, well, this must be what I'm meant to do. And this must be what I'm here for, you know what I'm saying? Waking up every day, looking at this same building with these addicts going in and out and people shooting every night. Like, this just must be the life. And some people learn to accept it and some people learn to consume them and some people try to change it and, and try to fight back against that system. Kind of like how society look at us, like we're not nothing, we don't matter. And then after a while, we start looking at ourselves like that. Getting shot set Lyndon down an even darker path. Soon he would turn from drug dealer to drug addict. He had dabbled in drugs casually before, but this was different. His leg hurt every single second, every time he breathed. When his prescription ran out, he turned to the street to get pain pills, and eventually he got hooked on heroin. It consumed him. Wake up, go to sleep, and looking and trying to get high. You know what I'm saying? That's why I know it was too much. Like, it'd be on your mind more than you even brushing your teeth or washing your face. Or, you know what I'm saying? Getting something to eat. You know what I'm saying? You got $10. If you're an addict, you're not going to go buy no food. You're going to go get high with that $10 and then think about, oh, I'm going to try to get something to eat now. You know what I'm saying? But when you just went and got you something to eat at first. Soon, Lyndon was buying heroin off his friends, living with the addicts he'd previously sold drugs to. As drugs like Oxycontin flooded the rural white areas of Missouri, North St. Louis had become a burgeoning heroin market for customers coming from all over. The dealers capitalized. The drug was everywhere. Well, it, it, it wasn't always bad. Like, I had a job at first, you know what I'm saying? So I was able to supply my habit and feed my own habit. I didn't have to steal. 
I didn't have to uh, beg for money and nothing. I was working and going to buy my own drugs. But once I like lost my job, and that's when it kind of became stressful and a problem. Cause now I want to get this high and I need this urge to get this high, but I don't have no money. And that's when you start making bad decisions and doing bad things just to get the money, just to get high. You can get out of the hood. The Reverend did it himself. But sometimes there's a moment that demarcates a before and an after. On the streets, it could be a shooting, an arrest, a friend who dies. It's something that makes you feel like it would be impossible for you to do or be anything different. You're committed to a life. The effort to pull out of it will be nothing short of a miracle. I would just ride through just to see him sometimes because I just wanted to see him. And I, Lord have mercy, to, he was unrecognizable at times. One time I ran into him at this pizza place and the people in the place were just really talking to him really bad, like, because he had been coming around, like he had been stealing or something like that. And man, I was all dressed up, just gotten out of church. I hear my child is looking just thrown away, derelict, smelling bad. But anyway, he was so high that day, he was mumbling. I couldn't even understand anything he was saying. He was like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? And that was, our whole conversation was like that. You know what I'm saying? And you know what I'm saying? I'm like, son, what are you, I don't, I, I, I don't understand what you're saying. And um, that whole visit was like that. He took the pizzas, then he jumped in the car and drove off. Was not drove off, but rolled off with these folks. I wrote the license plate down because I don't know why I did that. I just I don't know. He just seemed so vulnerable. And he goes jumping in his car. And it was a relatively new car, so I didn't know what to make of that. So that hurt me so bad that, I mean, I actually got sick behind it. And um, at, at that point, I was like, I need to step away. I'm too close to this. Um, this is killing me. Killing me to see my boy like that. All the while, the Reverend kept walking the streets at night. At one point, Lyndon got arrested on a weapons charge for possessing a handgun. Even though it broke his heart, the Reverend refused to bail Lyndon out. I would read what the Bible taught, you know, the story of the prodigal son, the young man that left home and, and, and basically wasted his life. So I, I, I couldn't, and I tried to be true to that model, I couldn't follow, that father did not follow that child to the pigsty. He didn't follow him there. He had to let him go and help him understand that I love you and I'm, I love you and I'm here for you when you decide you want to come back home. And that's what happened in the parable. And I think to a large extent, I think that's kind of what happened with me and my son. It was in jail that Lyndon would have a turning point where he made up his mind for the first time to try going clean. Still, Lyndon struggled with his addiction. The relationship with his father strained and they didn't see each other for months at a time. And then I went through this thing, and I still wrestle with it sometimes now, and be like, I must be a jacked up father. You know, I think that sometimes. I'm doing something really, really wrong for my child to be, you know, you know, so out there like that. I just thought I've, and I feel a lot like, like that a lot of times, uh, that I failed him. In some kind of way, I, I, I failed him. So it's, it's a burden I, I, I bear, something I just kind of carry around like, uh, some kind of way. I failed this little dude, and I just don't, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know how to 
you know, I don't know how to fix that. For some time now, the Reverend hadn't known where his son was living, or if he was still out on the streets. That March, he set out to find him again. For three days, he knocked on doors. He talked to people he knew. He talked to people he didn't, always fearing the worst. But eventually, he found him. And when he did, they met on a different level. For the first time, Lyndon told his dad everything about his addiction, his PTSD, and his struggles. His father did the same. They cried as they went over what had gone down. Lyndon seemed different. He said he was going to keep fighting. Nobody's perfect, you know what I'm saying? But I'm trying every day, and I'm fighting every day to do the right thing. And as long as I keep that, don't worry about the past, nothing I did, everybody did something. Don't worry about the future. I'm worried about the present and right now and what I'm doing right now, and I'm doing the right thing right now. He told his father he would see him in church the following Sunday, a promise he had made before. This time, he meant it. That Sunday morning, the Reverend came to church like any other Sunday. But for the first time in a long time, Lyndon was with him. A little worse for wear, a little worn down, but hopeful for the first time in years. It was a freezing cold day in the beginning of March. Only a handful of people had shown up, and the massive rundown church felt empty, as if it was only the Reverend and Lyndon. The Reverend began his sermon and turned to his son. The enemy has fought him for years, trying to take his life uh, while he was gangbanging. But today he's here. And so I have an expectation of him. It's a powerful thing when folk believe in you. But when, when folk believe in you, son, they have an expectation for you to rise. People that believe in you have a right to have an expectation of you. I expect you to be a good daddy to my granddaughters. I expect you to get a job, get an education, start a career, or start your own business. I expect you to tell those crips, I can't crip for life. Son, I believe in you just like God believed in me and would not let me down. And I promise you right now in front of these folk that I will never abandon you. I might get mad at you sometimes. I might say some tough things, but I ain't never, ever, ever gonna leave you. I'm never gonna walk away from you. I always love you. I always believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. Now I need you to believe in you. 